All right, as we head into warmer weather across much of the U.S. in the coming months, one way to stay cool and continue to get a good night's sleep is by checking out Bull and Branch Bedding and Sheets. They're a brand that we love here at Mo News. We only endorse products that we love. And we've been using Bull and Branch for more than two years now in our home. The sheets have been great, soft, breathable fabric that works for both cold and warm weather. We noticed the quality immediately and have gotten a few different sets in our house. I know Jill has as well. They're made with 100% organic cotton, completely free from toxins. I know that is very important to a number of you. And it's not just sheets. They have blankets, duvets, pillows, a whole variety of products to ensure you get a good night's sleep. And right now, they have a great deal for the Mo News community. Go check them out. I promise you will not be disappointed. Again, they get softer with every wash. So the deal right now is 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS over at bullandbranch.com. That is bullandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code MONEWS for 15% off. Exclusions do apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. It's Mo Shwanunu. Thanks for joining me for another Mo News conversation. I am currently traveling abroad. And in place of the daily newscast, we're bringing you some exciting and new interviews and deep dives over the course of the next couple of weeks. Today's topic, the return to the moon, why we are headed back there after 50 years. This conversation, by the way, is for both skeptics and space geeks. It has, yes, been 50 years. December 1972 was the last time humans walked on the moon, and we are headed back. NASA is poised to return there with the new Artemis program. We've been covering it over the course of the past couple of weeks. And that starts with the launch of a rocket this fall with the goal of landing humans on the moon by as soon as 2025. The ultimate goal is a moon base that will help humans then launch a mission to Mars within a decade. However, as you've been following these headlines, technical issues have hampered NASA's plans and have canceled the last two most recent attempted launches over the course of the past couple of weeks. The cost of the program also keeps ballooning, and so there's a lot to discuss here. For this episode, I invited on David Curley. He's a space correspondent for Discovery Channel for all their live launches, and he's also the editor of the Full Throttle newsletter. I will link to that in show notes, where he covers all things aviation and all things space. He previously covered those issues for a number of years for ABC News, where he was the network's transportation correspondent. My conversation with David will uh, run the gamut, will explore the mission to return to the moon, the latest challenges NASA is experiencing, and how soon it might be uh, before they're able to actually get that rocket off the ground. He also has some insider information of what actually took place and why it's going to now take a couple months, potentially, before they get this thing off the ground. Spoiler alert, human error here. As they were trying to fix one problem, they created another one. Uh, we'll also discuss the larger plan to get to Mars and the state of space exploration, including the competition between the billionaires, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Richard Branson, and the Boeing company. We also get into one of my favorite TV shows, For All Mankind. That's an Apple Plus drama, if any of you have watched it, that imagines a world where the U.S.-Russian space race never ended and the mission to the moon never ended, and we build these moon bases. Anyway, it's kind of a cool show, and we talk about uh, how that show effectively helps visualize what is actually going to take place here in the real world. Before we start, a reminder to subscribe or follow this podcast on whatever app you choose to listen to us on and leave us a review. Every review matters. It actually helps us uh, move up the rankings and helps grow the show. With that said, now to my conversation about all things space. David Curley, it's great to be chatting. Yeah, it's a pleasure to talk about space anytime. Well, we are speaking after what was supposed to be a pretty triumphant week for NASA, the return to the beginning of the return to the moon. And there have been a few hiccups. 
Uh, Scrub launched last week, uh, this weekend. But before we get to what went wrong, I want to reset for everyone what this Artemis mission is all about and why we are going back to the moon. Well, we're going back to the moon so that we can go to Mars. Uh, and if you talk to NASA, you know, they'll talk about exploration, that we are an exploring being and we need to reach beyond uh, not only our planet and our moon, uh, but other planets in our solar system and at some time beyond our solar system. If you talk to Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, the reason they want to get into space, uh, Musk to Mars, is to preserve the human species, the consciousness of uh, humanity as an insurance policy in case something really bad happens here on Earth, that uh, humans are living someplace other than on Earth. But back to NASA and Artemis, th this whole mission is to go back to the moon and stay, as they like to say, uh, with a moon base there to learn uh, what it's like to live in that kind of environment, which is pretty similar to what it would be like uh, on Mars for astronauts. And, and I know in particular, this time around, they're more interested in the south pole of the moon. Why, what's the significance there? Right. So Apollo 11 and the Apollos that followed uh, were kind of more on the equator of the moon. And this is the South Pole. And the reason is that uh, you can't carry everything with you. And uh, it, it would be really nice to have some water. And they believe in the South Pole in some of the places that are shadowed and sometimes completely shadowed. There may be ice. There are indications that there is ice there. Uh, and that's great because if you can mine the ice, uh, you can turn it uh, into water. You can split it into oxygen and hydrogen. That gives you something uh, that's basically what the Artemis rocket runs on, oxygen and hydrogen. So you have fuel, uh, would be able to uh, add some of the oxygen to breathe. So uh, if you can find water on, on the moon and maybe later on Mars, uh, it really allows you to stay potentially uh, longer than you might be able to. So let's get to the problems uh, that they faced in the last week, because um, this is years years in the making, years behind, billions of dollars over. Um, they literally had the vice president of the United States out there for the launch. Um, what happened? Well, they've had a couple of problems. Uh, first, let's remind the audience, this is a brand new rocket. It has a lot of old technology on it, but it's the first time it's been put together in this uh, Artemis rocket, the SLS rocket, that is uh, set to take us back to the moon. Uh, they had a problem, they've had some numerous problems. Hydrogen, which is the fuel, which is mixed with hydrogen, uh, oxygen, the uh, oxidizer, um, is a very small molecule, smallest molecule out there. And uh, it has been problematic, always has been problematic, uh, very flammable. They had a couple of leaks on the first attempt, which they were actually able to fix. But one of the engines, you basically, uh, to get as much hydrogen and oxygen as you need into the tanks, uh, you super chill it, um, minus 420 plus degrees for the uh, hydrogen. And that's so you can carry more of it. And if you have it that cold, you don't want to introduce it to a warm uh, structure, pipes or the engine. So they do a pre-chill, they chill everything down before they start pumping in the hydrogen. And when they were running hydrogen through the four engines, which are space shuttle engines, uh, one of them was saying uh, it wasn't getting chilled. Uh, what they found out later was it was just a they think it was a bad sensor because uh, hydrogen was coming out the other end colder than what the sensor said it was inside the engine. So that was a problem. They've had some quick disconnect. Uh, these are the, 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 the pipes and the, uh, the, the way to bring fuel and um, 
and oxygen into the into the rocket uh, that have not been functioning correctly, and that was the real problem. They had a, a big, what they called a large leak on one of the uh, quick uh, disconnects, which uh, was the hydrogen one. And so they had a lot of hydrogen leaking, which is then becoming a vapor, a gas again from liquid. Uh, remember the Hindenburg, hydrogen is extremely flammable. Uh, so they shut mm -hmm. it down and they're trying to figure out uh, what's going on with that quick disconnect. There was, a, they won't say this is a cause yet, but the operator who was running um, the hydrogen uh, pre-chill, quote unquote, inadvertently opened the wrong valve. And three times the amount of pressure of this supercooled hydrogen hit that quick disconnect, which has, uh, it's, it's got a, a gasket, um, you know, the two ends come together, the outside and the side inside the rocket. And this three times the pressure of hydrogen hit it. They won't say that that, you know, damaged the gasket uh, but it, it seems to be what they're saying and what they will find out that uh, that mistake of opening the wrong valve uh, may have damaged the gasket, which meant they had the big leak, which meant they didn't launch on Saturday. Got so that took that accident took place in between the scrubbed first launch and the scrubbed second launch. Yeah, it was the second attempt. It was the it was Saturday's attempt to launch. Uh, and they were starting what they call the pre-chill, which is let's run some cold uh, hydrogen into these lines to get them ready to bring in heavier loads and they call it fast fill. And it's basically, um, it, it, hydrogen has a tendency if it gets, if it runs into something warm, it may bubble up and you get bubbles and that's not good. Uh, so this, this operator apparently hit the wrong valve, which sent, the, the numbers were, tw it was supposed to be 20, pounds per square inch, it ended up being 60 pounds per square inch of this really cold hydrogen hitting this gasket. Um, and then they had the large leak and they tried a couple of times to fix it and couldn't. And the way they were trying to fix it was to warm it up and then hit it again with chill, the chilled hydrogen, hoping that you know it expanded and then you contract it again and you get a seal. But it was so large, it sounds like, they haven't said it, but it sounds like that overpressurization, the mistake, the inadvertent opening of that wrong valve may have damaged the gasket and uh, they're gonna have to go in and fix it. And that's in the rocket side, not on the quick disconnect on the outside of the rocket. So the question is, do they have access on the pad to get in there and change out what they call soft goods, O-rings, gaskets, rubber, basically, uh, malleable materials, not steel. And there's a chance that even the steel part of the quick disconnect could have been damaged, they said as well. If they can't fix it on the pad, they're gonna to have to take it back to the vehicle assembly building, which means launch is probably not gonna be until after mid-October. When it comes to the decision to use hydrogen here, the most abundant element in the universe, but also the lightest, and at, given how light it is, it can ooze out of any opening. Uh, take us back to the decision to re, because I understand these rockets are also from a previous, from the space shuttle program, and they're reusing hydrogen, which is controversial. How did that decision come about? Yeah, it is fascinating. So the space shuttle was getting ready to, they knew the end was coming to the space shuttle and NASA came up with a new program to go to the moon called Constellation. And it was using um, shuttled engines and solid rockets that the shuttle used as well. And when Obama came into office um, and his deputy administrator, Lori Garver, um, they decided 
this program is not being run correctly. It's already over budget. It's not going to work. And so they decided to kill Constellation. And Obama ordered it uh, shut down. And it was shut down. But Congress uh, decided that it was time for it to legislate uh, how we would get back to the moon. And this is part of what I consider the space industrial complex. You know, you know, Eisenhower talked about the military industrial complex. Space is the same way. There are manufacturers and contractors in dozens of states, meaning dozens of congressional districts, and Congress mandated that NASA would go to the moon using those old shuttle engines, the RS-25s, and solid rocket boosters, which are made in Utah, to go back to the moon. So Artemis was born out of what was left of Constellation, and that's where we are today. Now those RS-25 engines from the shuttle run on hydrogen, so NASA was kind of boxed in. You gotta use hydrogen because Congress told you you have to use these engines that were left over from the shuttle. So that's why we have a hydrogen rocket. It's it's all about job protection. In my district, I have 300 people who work on this part, and we need to make sure that that part is also part of this new program. Though I, I was reading, uh, David, uh, your newsletter, Full Throttle, which I recommend everyone subscribe to, uh, and you were talking to Lori Garver, the former NASA official who was close to Obama here, um, and was explaining how this all came to be. And one of the things that President Obama had told her is, I think NASA should do fewer things better. Um, right. And you know, he tried to tried to kill certain programs, but they weren't able to kill the moon program altogether. How, how did it survive? Uh, and, and why was President Obama so intent on killing the moon mission? Uh, I, I don't know that, it, according to Garver, it wasn't that he wanted yeah. to kill the moon mission. It was that they felt that it was being mismanaged, that it was not um, producing the, and it was already over budget. And they just saw it getting worse and worse and said, let's cut our losses and get out of that now and have NASA concentrate on other things. And Garber also pointed out, and, and she and, and, and before her, uh, Golden, the former NASA administrator, really started to push privatization. And, and her point now today is these launches of the Artemis rocket are gonna cost you and me and the rest of the taxpayers out there about four billions a, a pop, that um, we should have privatized this heavy lift capability, which a moon mission is, as we did with the LEO, the low Earth orbit stuff that uh, Elon Musk and others are doing uh, right now with SpaceX and Electron and several other companies that are now getting into orbit. Um, and because, quest- because conceivably, we're going to have to go back and forth to the moon a lot. And at $4 billion a pop, that's, that's quite the price tag. Yes. And NASA's already started talking about they're going to privatize this rocket, uh, the SLS rocket, which means Boeing is going to get the contract to run this outside, if it's a fixed cost contract, which is, you know, we'll pay you this much, um, then fine. But, you know, Elon Musk is working on his Starship, which is a heavy lift vehicle. It has to be refueled um, in low Earth orbit, which is a little different than the Artemis rocket. Um, I, I would guess at some point we'll get to privatization for this heavy lift stuff, and NASA will be more, uh, will do kind of what Obama said. They'll do. <laughs> fewer things better. They'll do the exploration. They'll have the astronauts on. They'll do the missions and they will use a taxi cab uh, to get to the moon and and potentially get to Mars. It seems like, you know, you've been watching this much, much more closely that the the most success we've had in recent years is in the private space world. It's the Elon Musk, the Jeff Bezos, the Richard Branson's uh, Boeing to a certain extent. Was it too early for Congress and and, uh, NASA to see uh, that 
privatization was the way to go a decade ago when they decided to go ahead with this, with this Artemis program? Well, well, there were a lot of people who were fighting it back then who didn't think it was going to work. And um, I think Bezos and, and Musk and many others have proven that, yes, it, it, it can work. NASA's really been out of the launch business since the space shuttle. They've not been launching any rockets. I mean, that's, that's why this is a brand new rocket. Once again, old technology, the engines have been updated, you know, the, the boosters are slightly different. Um, it's all been updated and techno technically as advanced as they can be with what it's, was built. It's, it's, it's sort of when I go to the Apple store and I ask for a new iPhone and they're like, <laughs> no, we're going to give you a, a refurbed one. Yeah, right. It still works, right? It might, yeah. it, it, it'll still make a call for you. It, um, it, it doesn't feel great though. But yes. No, and the thing to remember, NASA, has, they haven't launched anything and it's almost, it's 11 years, almost a dozen years. And this is a brand new rocket. And so, you know, you, you, it's a very complicated rocket. So I, I, listen, Musk is having trouble with the Starship right now. You know, that, that thing hasn't gotten to orbit yet. Um, they like to say it and I, I completely agree. Space is hard. And, and rocket yeah. science is, is not easy. It's, so It's literally rocket science, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah. yes, I believe that um, private and, and, and commercializing some of this heavy lift will be coming. Um, but I think we're in this NASA model for probably, certainly the rest of this decade and, and probably well into the 2030s. Yeah, I was curious about, you were saying they, NASA hasn't launched uh, for a dozen years where NASA is today, historically speaking, from the glory days of Apollo through the shuttle program, and then in recent years, you know, there's been a focus on the telescopes and the rovers, um, but the budgets have diminished, the capabilities seem to have diminished. But what what is the state of NASA these days, all these years in? Well, I think there's a lot of excitement right now, and, and it's kind of a spillover from the fact that the commercial stuff has worked so well. Um, you know. We're, we're getting American astronauts to the space station from American soil, not on a NASA rocket, but on a SpaceX rocket, and at some point, uh, a Boeing capsule as well. Um, I've actually, there are parts of the agency that are quite impressive. Um, I'm telling you, it, it's, it's, it's one of the most balanced organizations I've seen when it comes to uh, gender-based leadership. Um, there are a lot of women in very powerful places in NASA. My wife says, well, why is that surprising? And I said, man, it's the way it should be. And, and it certainly is at NASA. They're, uh, they're pretty well integrated there. And, and, you know, the sexy stuff is astronauts, you know, doing things that you and I can't do. And it's been fun to watch them on the space station. I still have a, I get a charge out of watching them do work on the station, whether inside or outside. Um, I'd say generally it's an organization that um, they're doing pretty good. They're doing pretty good. You know, it's not the NASA of the 60s, um, but, you know, th there's a lot of excitement about what's happening. I mean, look at, we're looking at, uh, you know, the, the, the telescope and some of the image it's sending. We're doing, they're doing an asteroid. We're going to go hit an asteroid with a spacecraft to see if we can change its trajectory. I mean, there are a lot of exciting things that are going on that NASA's working on um, and reaching out farther uh, outside of our solar system. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable that literally that program you just mentioned, it's literally a program to save humanity from a potential, you know, destruction. And how much, how much money are we actually allocating towards it? Yeah, I forget the numbers. I'd have to go look at it. But it uh, certainly, uh, it's not at the $4 billion a pop for an Artemis mission to go to the moon. Um, 
Right. So n- not even $4 billion for the whole I- technology to, I don't know, save humanity. Well, so planet, just, right? j- just, yeah, but let's, let's put it a little more in perspective. Uh, we're we're yeah. going to put human beings on top of that rocket. We want to make sure they're safe. That takes more money. Right. Sending a small little spacecraft uh, across the cosmos to, to hit an asteroid, um, you know, doesn't need quite the same safety and, and, and environmental concerns that we do on this rocket. Got it. Um, take me through the timeline. Should we get this Artemis mission launched this fall um, through uh, the next potential mission in 2024, 2025, and then the next decade? Basically, how, how do they look at the next 10, 20 years in terms of the, the mission to the moon and then Mars? Right. Uh, so this is a test mission, um, not only the first time to test this rocket, which um, they'll be using for several launches. I think they've, they've got six that are contracted for, and they've already asked for additional engines. Um, I don't know what the, how many numbers of, of missions beyond that. So this is to test the rocket and also the Orion capsule, which flew <laughs> several years ago, actually, on, it, on its first around the Earth mission, but sending it out to the moon um, and beyond the moon, because this is not going to be the orbit like uh, Apollo was. You know, the Apollo was a right around the moon, this is gonna be more of an oval, and it's called, uh, um, they're going very deep, like 40,000 miles past the moon uh, with this capsule. And they're doing- Why is a, that? Uh, they wanna test it, uh, not just long duration, but to the environment uh, beyond the moon. The radiation that you're gonna see, um, th- there's a radiation belt out there that they wanna see how the spacecraft does, how it would, would affect astronauts if they were on board. So Orion was uh, designed, as was the service module, which was built by the Europeans for a 21-day mission. They're hoping to run a 42 mission, so twice as long to, to really see whether this spacecraft can hold up and, and, and help the astronauts. So that is, we test the spacecraft. It comes back. They're going to learn a bunch of lessons. The lessons will go into the second Orion capsule, which is already under construction, but they'll add and subtract and they'll do all kinds of stuff. Then the next mission will have four astronauts on board and they will go around the moon. They will not land. That's, that should be probably two years, year and a half, two years after this mission ends. Then the plan is to send astronauts back up and they will actually land. But the thing, you know, was originally we were gonna be back in 24, then it was, well, we're gonna be there in 25. Asking, well, maybe it's going to be 26. It isn't just the rocket and the capsule. We need a new spacesuit to walk around on the moon. And NASA just let the contract for two companies to compete on that, you know, a couple of months ago. We need a lander. Uh, they did a single source contract with SpaceX to use their Starship for the first landing back on the moon. That hasn't reached orbit yet. Um, so, and then there's supposed to be a gateway, which is a small space station that will orbit the moon that would be a way station where the astronauts would come and dock, you know, spend some time getting ready and then go down to the moon. So there, there's a lot of stuff that has to happen. Um, I thought 2024 from the former NASA administrator was pretty optimistic. And I think a lot of us thought that back uh, when they were talking about it. And it, if we land on the, the moon in 25, that'd be great. 26 wouldn't surprise me. Got it. And then beyond that, so what, you, to, then, what has happened to then get us to Mars? So we want to find out if there's water. That's where we're putting the astronauts down there on the South Pole. 
there are also a couple of satellites that are doing mapping right now of the South Pole and looking for ice as well. Uh, so the follow-on missions would be to set up a base camp, a moon base, um, to see if you can start harvesting some of that ice. Uh, how difficult is it to convert it into hydrogen and oxygen and all the elements you want to use it for? Um, what's it like to live on the moon for, you know, weeks? Because if you remember, I mean, that the longest mission for humans was a few days uh, mm -hmm. on, on the surface of the moon. So all those lessons then tell you, okay, can we go to Mars now and set up a base? And, you know, Mars will be a lot like the moon. They'll land. Hey, we were able to land, stay a few days probably. Elon Musk has a different idea of how that would work. Um, and then you have the knowledge you've gained on the moon of how to build a base and how to survive and... You know, you can't carry everything with you. Um, we just don't have the energy right now to defeat the physics to get, you know, enough food, fuel, and uh, consumables for a long-term mission, either the moon or Mars. But we learn a lot along the way. So, so we're, looking, uh, we're looking decades out, potentially, on a, a Mars mission, if it's even financially possible. Well, it depends. If you listen to Elon Musk, no, it's, you know, it's, it's not decades. Um, you know, he's hoping, I, I, we, I'm sure a mission to Mars is possible by 2030, probably. Uh, okay. Not that you'd stay. Um, Musk's idea is, you know, that a bunch of ships and robots would go ahead of the humans and set up a base camp so that when the humans arrive, um, they'd have some way to sustain themselves and uh, survive. Um, you know, the guy said he was going to build... Uh, electric vehicles at scale and that he was going to build a reusable rocket. He did both of those. So I'm not saying it can't be done. He's, 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 he's got a good, uh, good track record, uh, there so far. Um, one thing you did talk about, so obviously this engine issue, uh, is holding them up. Uh, you wrote recently about the Orion capsule being a concern, uh, reentry. Uh, this is the, this is what you've talked about that, that would carry the astronauts. Um, and that effectively they literally need to test it by, literally flying into space and seeing how it re-enters the um, atmosphere. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's the whole, that's the primary mission. I mean, yeah, they're going to go fly around the moon and that's great. And you get to see how Orion stands up to radiation and micrometeorites and everything. But the number one priority for this mission, Artemis 1, is to bring Orion back into the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, and the reason is that they're using a, a heat shield. It's different than Apollo. It's... Um, it's sections. Um, they don't call them tiles like we had on the shuttle, but they are, they are pieces of, of a new material and not one, because Apollo was just one shield. And so this is a new ablative material. It melts off as it's supposed to as you're re-entering the atmosphere. But they, it, coming from that orbit that they're going around to the moon, they'll be coming back so fast, 25,000 miles an hour, that the heat, when they hit the atmosphere 5,000 degrees, we can't create that here on Earth to test whether the heat shield's going to work. So the whole test mission, number one priority is to make sure that the heat shield holds coming through there. And it's so hot and so fast, they're actually doing what they call a skip re-entry, which means they're gonna dip into the atmosphere and hit it, hit it hard first and then they're gonna come out of the atmosphere. So they've slowed down a little bit. It's like if you hit your brakes really hard and then you let off on your brakes, 
and then you hit them again. So they're gonna skip out and then they're gonna come back into the atmosphere a second time uh, to slow the capsule down enough. And it's all a question of whether that heat shield can take that amount of heat. And they have sensors buried in different levels in these uh, tiles, even though they don't like to call them tiles, uh, inside, in the, uh, on the heat shield to monitor, you know, how, much, how fast it burns up, how, uh, how far down did it get? They'll see a lot of this when it gets down. They're a little worried about the gaps between them. You know, does, does, mm -hmm. does some of the plasma get in between the gaps? So yeah, that is a, that's priority number one, that the heat shield works. If it doesn't work, you know, we're gonna have to try something else. They're gonna have to be another test mission because they're not gonna put astronauts in that capsule. So literally they're gonna skip, like it's like skipping a rock on a pond, basically, skipping the Orion capsule back onto Earth. Like you're not going in the first, you're gonna kind of bounce its yeah. way into the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. So you, you bleed off a, 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 some speed on that first one. And you know, uh, the reason that we use capsules and they, they can have some aerodynamics to them, you can actually guide it to come back out of the atmosphere. So. Yeah, it's, I, I use these skipping a rock on the pond as, a, as an analogy because um, that's why they're doing it. It's because it's coming in so fast. So I feel like there's always two reactions every time I report out a, a NASA or a fascinating space story. The people who are captivated and excited and the people who are like, why are we spending a dime on this? Um, and I think it's always good to remind people what, what technologies have come out of, what has developed, what is the purpose of missions like this, David? Uh, from the NASA perspective and from your perspective as a, as a correspondent covering these things? That's the same discussion that this country had back in the 1960s when Kennedy said, we're going to the moon by the end of the decade. The exact same. There were people talking about, we need more money for the poor, for education, for food. Um, and, and, we're, and we will continue to have it, I'm sure. Yes, the technology benefits are huge. NASA likes to remind you um, some of the technologies that have come out of space. I mean, the one you probably will use today, uh, Velcro is one of them. It was actually, um, it was developed before the, the, the space program, but really uh, kind of pushed it. Uh, and what we are learning about what we can do in zero gravity um, on the space station, uh, I was just reading a piece about um, computer chips and everybody's trying to get smaller and smaller computer chips. And part of the problem here on earth is it's hard to, even if you have a clean room, can you, you know, create this pure, small little chip, but you might be able to do it in, in zero gravity. Maybe you do it on the space station or a private space station. Uh, the, the technology benefits um, are huge. And um, so to me, it's kind of the dual purpose. We are explorers. We do want to know where we came from. You know, we'll learn a lot from Mars. We'll learn more from the moon too, uh, what's in the moon. Uh, below some of the regolith that uh, might teach us about the creation of our planet since the moon probably came from us. And then Mars, you know, if life was there, why didn't it survive? Uh, we'll learn lessons there. Uh, so it's, to me, it's the exploration. Um, and I mean, why did ancient humans, you know, walk across a river or make a boat to sail across an ocean or a lake? or walk out of Africa. Um, we are explorers and that's a huge part of, um, of our beings. Do you watch uh, For All Mankind on Apple? I do, I have not seen the, I, I saw the first two seasons, I've not yet seen the third season. So, so this is a, a show on uh, Apple Plus and it uh, takes you through an alternate reality where uh, the Russians uh, somehow got into space first 
and it leads to this whole space race. And basically, the the we we go through a different historical timeline uh, where ultimately, you know, Apollo continues. We have a moon base. We're drilling. Um, uh, basically, you you have the first female and black astronauts already in the seventies. It has this whole huge cultural shift, and so anybody who's into alternate histories or space, I would recommend it. I, I'm where you are, uh, David, uh, and and so I I have all of these images from the Apple Show for All Mankind in mind as we talk about you know the first moon base and and finally getting to some of these things. And and uh, at the end of season two, uh, I guess this is going to. I'm sorry. Spoiler alert. Yes, total spoiler alert. Uh, you know, a couple of astronauts, they have a, a nuclear uh, problem with their moon base, which is something we haven't talked about, uh, how we get to Mars, whether we can get there with chemicals or whether we're going to need nuclear propulsion, which many people think we're going to have to have. And they had nuclear on that moon base and for all mankind. And uh, it was a great lesson about spacesuits. I don't know if you remember, they used duct tape. Um, basically, if you walk into uh, the emptiness of space without protection, uh, your body wants to pull apart, <laughs> just kind of explode. And uh, that watching them wrap themselves in duct tape and, you know, to survive 25 seconds so that they could flip the nuclear reactor was uh, fascinating stuff. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a fascinating show. And, uh, you know, ultimately we, you know, 50 years after that would have taken place, we'll see where we get here. I am curious, uh, and a couple of questions before we go, David, number one, space station. What is the state of the space station? Obviously, we had the headlines in regards to the Russians. Um, what is happening there, and, and what's the future of that program? So, space station has been approved uh, on the U.S. side through 2030, uh, and the Russians have said that they plan to build their own space station sometime after 2024. And people have said, "Oh, they're leaving in 2024." No, that's not what they said. Uh, they were very careful in their language. I wouldn't be surprised if the Russians are there. Uh, to the end of the space station. And the, the, the guy who runs the space station right now for NASA suggested at a conference I was at a couple of weeks ago that it could be extended beyond 2030. Um, if the Russians do decide to leave, um, one of the main parts of the station that actually helps it move up and down, left and right, and keep its attitude in orbit is Russian. Um, so if they want to take their part with them, we're going to have to replace it, which is not impossible. It can be done. And uh, there are some very good contractors who could put something together to do that. Would the Russians sell it to us? Would we want to buy it? Um, a lot of questions with that. Uh, I think the resolution of Ukraine and relations with Russia will tell us a lot. NASA has really gone out of its way, and the White House has let them uh, try and maintain this relationship with the Russians at the space station, even though everywhere else you're seeing sanctions and, and difficult language. Um, they are continuing to, to run this together. The current commander of the space station is a Russian. So uh, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. And I don't think the Russians are going anywhere anytime soon either. So uh, despite the situation and the issues we have here on Earth, it appears in, in space, uh, the cooperation continues. It does. And, uh, you know, that was part of the reasons to make it an international space station, you know, was to keep the Russians and their engineers engaged. Um, better to pay them than to fight with them, right? Um, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we're at least diplomatically fighting with them right now. There's some first that will happen with this moon mission. The goal is to land the first woman on the moon. And first person of color. First, and first, first person of color. Yeah. 
um, whether that's the same person or um, whether two people, yes. Uh, it, it is a stated goal. It started with the, uh, in the last administration and it's continued with this administration that that will be the case and, and it will be a first. And there are some very talented astronauts who fit uh, th that criteria who um, very likely could be on that first mission. Were we close to that with the Apollo missions or was that not uh, under consideration back then? Um, there was uh, an African-American uh, pilot who was in the, in, the NASA, uh, in the program who might have flown on Apollo, but that, it all kind of fell apart. And I, I, I would uh, suggest that there's plenty out there to read about him, and, but it wasn't necessarily a mandate. The astronaut corps was pretty well set in NASA. I mean, that's a, that's a beautiful thing about for all mankind, you know, women were brought in early. Uh, you know, there were a bunch of women who tried out, wanted to be part of the Mercury program or at least the Gemini program, uh, and that didn't happen, but many of them had trained. Uh, so yeah, it was, not a, it was not something that NASA had planned back then. Times, you know, it's a very different time. One story I see frequently written is about how crowded things are getting in orbit with all the satellites being launched. What is the situation up there? I see the, the numbers seem to be getting exponentially large in terms of how many satellites are now flying, all the technologies that depend on GPS and beyond. Uh, what is the situation up there and, and how concerned are, are the experts in space in regards to how crowded things are getting? It is getting more and more crowded. I wish I had a graphic handy and you can find it. I mean, there's one that shows how many satellites are up there and, and Elon Musk just sent another rocket up the other day with some of more of his Starlink um, satellites. So uh, space is big. There are a lot of satellites up there. Um, a lot more can still go up there. Uh, nobody has said stop. Um, I don't know. It would take the UN to have to, you know, tell people that you, you can't put additional satellites up there. The UN does have some rules and regs about what you can do in space. Um, you know, the biggest concern is the abandoned or the old or the no longer working satellites that are basically now just junk um, and, and need to be deorbited. And actually, there are companies that are working on spacecraft that are, in essence, kind of robots to either go service satellites. This would be mostly in geospatial, you know, higher orbit than low Earth orbit. Uh, and, and then some robots to maybe start cleaning some of this stuff up. Um, but there hasn't been the, the clamor, the, the, the call that, you know, we've got to stop putting things up there and we have to clean it up. Um, I mean, NASA and, and the administration complained about China with its latest launch. You know, it's putting up sections of its space station and its booster comes down uncontrolled. Um, and right. the US. Right, and this is the scare every, every few months. Suddenly yeah. there's a Chinese rocket and we don't know where on earth it'll land. Right. I mean, the Russians and the Americans are pretty good at, uh, you know, figuring out at least to have enough trajectory and, and, and enough additional fuel to be able to put their uh, boosters in a, in a descent that sends them over the ocean. And the Chinese, we just don't really know. And they, they kind of went after them again. Um, so. The tensions we have on Earth are the same tensions we're going to have in space. By the way, when it comes to the China stuff, is that a lack of know-how or just laziness by the Chinese? What, or does it cost more money? Like, what's it, it, behind the whole letting rockets drop wherever they may? Yeah, um, I think they, they, they go with the odds that there's a lot of uh, water on the planet and they got a pretty good chance of missing land. Um, I'm not sure why they have not. They don't. 
We don't know a lot about their program, but really only what we see uh, in the, on their media. Um, I'm sure the government, uh, the U.S. government knows a bit more uh, through its surveillance capabilities. They just don't share it. And so I, I don't really have an answer for you as to why they don't um, control their boosters we, and we, other descending David, we live in an era of, of, of many Chinese conspiracy theories, so we can add that to the bunch. <laughs> <laughs> um, what else are you watching on the space front? So we have the Artemis program. We have all the stuff going on in the private world. We have kind of what takes place with the space station, uh, satellite, the various rovers. What are some of the things that you're most excited about uh, watching in the, in the coming years and people should pay attention to? Well, I still, I'm, I'm still fascinated by just the low Earth orbit stuff, which, um, you know, Musk has, uh, with SpaceX, has proven that uh, he can get up there frequently. Um, it's amazing the pace of, of launches and what he plans to do next year is really interesting. Um, watching Bezos come along with Blue Origin and whether his, um, you know, he still hasn't gotten to orbit yet. Um, and Boeing um, has been plagued. I mean, you know, Artemis, this is their rocket. Um, it's problematic. Their capsule for low Earth orbit has been problematic. Um, they were, I think they were really hoping to catch a break with this Artemis and get it off and that their rocket actually worked. Um, so I, I find all the rocket development very interesting. Um, the space stations are going to be very interesting. There are private space stations that are coming. They're going to be very different than the International Space Station. They're going to be a lot more private astronauts in space in the coming years. Um, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in living in these environments, uh, living on the moon and that moon base uh, it, it will be fascinating to see what we learn and what technologies come out of that. Um, and quite honestly, I think if we were to have this conversation in another five or six years, we're going to be talking about a nuclear propulsion for spacecraft and possibly for even powering a moon base. You know, we've been uh, using it on nuclear submarines and nuclear aircraft carriers for some time. A little different when you launch it into space and uh, very controversial. But it's there are a couple of companies and the government that are working on it that uh, it kind of changes the whole dynamic. You know, the, the problem with going to Mars right now is that it takes so long. And if you had nuclear propulsion, you could cut that trip significantly, which means you're cutting the radiation that an astronaut is absorbing. You're cutting all kinds of things. Um, so I, I think that we'll go through this pushing the chemical rockets as far as we can. And Musk is doing a really good job with that. And then something's going, something's going to change that's going to allow us to do to go deeper than we've ever gone before. What's the concern, given that you have nuclear submarines and nuclear aircraft carriers with nuclear uh, space vehicles and rockets? Well, I think nuclear power in general. That's why the Europeans, Germany, was going to close down their nuclear power plant. California was going to close Diablo Canyon. I think... Um, you know, you see Fukushima and some other things. It's still somewhat controversial that people don't are worried about safety and waste. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it, 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 there are serious questions to ask. And when you put a nuclear reactor on a rocket and now you're going to send it into space, I'm sure not everybody's going to be very happy about that. Um, so there's a lot of development going on. Um, I, I'm interested where that's going to end up because the experts tell me, you know, Musk's idea, it can work to get to Mars, but 
you, you really don't want to go on a chemical rocket. You, you, you really want to, the only way to do it is with nuclear propulsion. David Curley, the uh, correspondent for Space Launch Live on Discovery Channel and the editor of the Full Throttle Newsletter. Thanks so much for your insight. We'll check in with you regularly as they finally get this rocket off the ground. I appreciate it. Uh, it's a, it was fun to talk. Um, it's pretty exciting. It's going to go. I, I, I would like to be there to feel this one leave the planet because not only would you see it and hear it, you'd feel this rocket. Yeah, it's the, the largest rocket of all time, yes? Yep, yep. Most powerful. Great. Thanks, David. You bet. I want to thank David Curley again for joining me. A reminder to subscribe to his Full Throttle newsletter, where he dives several days a week into all things aviation, all things space. I think you really like it. I have a link to it in the show notes. I want your feedback on this podcast. Please email me your thoughts over at podcast at mo.news. Subscribe to the newsletter, the Mo News newsletter, over at monews.bulletin.com. And a reminder to also uh, follow me on Instagram, if you don't yet, at Moshe, at M-O-S-H-E-H. Reminder that over the course of the next two weeks, we'll be bringing you additional interviews on a whole variety of topics. And so I thank you for listening, and I'll see everyone here tomorrow.